Well, I am glad to be back at, uh, here at J-Town. I've, uh, I've been on staff at Sojourn for 10 years now, which in the life of our church is forever. Uh, but I, I've been able to lead global missions for a long time, and I was able to be here actually for about six months. Um, I, my wife and I moved out here to be on staff and help grow international missions. And um, now the Wilsons, Chris and Amanda, are doing a great job leading you guys. I'm able to collaborate with Chris on a regular basis, um, but I'm all I'm midtown, I'm leading global missions, I lead church planning, I lead mercy, and then I, I fill the pulpit sometimes too. So, uh, and that's what I get to do today. Lyle was very kind enough to ask me to come and open the sermon series on Daniel. We're going to spend the summer in the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bible, if you'll open to the book of Daniel chapter 1, and that's where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so you just have to be patient with me. There's a few difficult names. If I mess them up, we'll just keep moving, okay? We'll just keep moving. If you'll stand to your feet in honor of God's word, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jeroakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jeroakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought with them brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some people from the land of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish and of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Meshach he called Meshach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So they would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, who the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So they listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As, they were, as these four youths, God gave them learning and the skill in all literature and wisdom, and, God had underst- and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Hananiah, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every manner of wisdom and understanding about the 
which the king acquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enhancers that were in the, his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we lay before you God's word that you have inspired and you have given to your church. Father, I pray right now as we look at the life of Daniel, that you convict our hearts, that you draw us to you, Lord, that you allow us to leave as changed people. Lord, may the life of Daniel and his conviction to stand in a faithless generation cause us to be faithful men and women of God. It's in your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, as we look into Daniel chapter 1, I think it's important for us to understand the context. And I want to lay just a little bit of the context for the series that we're going to be in. And as we, we step into the story of Daniel, we find that God's people are in a hard place. For generations, God had sent his prophets over and over and over again to call his people back to repentance, back to life in God. He used people like Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and so many others. that The books are named after them. You can just look in your table of contexts and see who I'm talking about. These are the men that God used to call his people back to repentance. But instead of repentance, God's people chose sin and rebellion. And sadly, this is the way of God's people. This is our way, right? We choose sin and rebellion over God himself. That was the, the way of Adam and Eve. Second Chronicles tells us how the people responded to the prophets. Second Chronicles 36. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of God rose up against his people, until there was no remedy. So God, in his kindness, sent prophets to his people to call them back. Repent. Turn back to God. And God's people respond by choosing sin and self every time. They choose sin and self. And God's response to them was to send an unstoppable army to defeat the army of Judah and to send his people into exile. So they become Babylonian exiles. So this is actually the first of several different Attacks that King Nebuchadnezzar sends on Jerusalem. Three different attacks. This is the first one. And we see by the third one, Jerusalem's destroyed. So over and over again, this is happening. God's people had chosen sin instead of God, and the result was devastating. They lost everything. Everything. It seems like God's promises of land and people uh, were going away. And friends, I want us to just stop for a moment before we even get into the sermon. I don't want us to reflect on this picture of what's happening in Daniel. That sin often does the same thing in our lives, right? In the moment when we look at sin, when sin is enticing us, when it's pulling us in, it seems like sin is the good life. It's what we really want. Something that will make us truly happy, but instead, sin does one thing. Sin brings death. Without exception. If we pursue sin and God doesn't bring us back or we don't repent, sin will destroy us. And that's what it did to Judah the people of Judah, and to God's people. It will cause us to lose everything. And when we look at the book of Daniel, uh, we see in the context of Daniel, God's people living in exile. So they're away from their land. They're foreigners that are held captive. I think it's really important to understand that. They're not in Israel. They're not in Judah. They're not in Jerusalem. They live in a foreign land with a foreign language, with a foreign culture. They are slaves and prisoners in this place. So all that's happening with Daniel is happening uh, in the context of them being captive. But as we look at the book of Daniel, and as Lyle, as Lyle will walk you through the book of Daniel, uh, I can see at least three major themes that are woven throughout the book. 
So let me give you those themes uh, real quickly. The first theme is that God is sovereign over everything. Every single thing. Big, small, everything in between. God is sovereign over everything. And we see God's sovereign hand woven throughout the pages of Daniel. So we'll talk about that a little more uh, later this morning. Secondly, we see that God meets his people when they pray. Over and over again, Daniel and his friends get themselves in impossible situations. Think about the fiery furnace. They refuse to bow before an idol. Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fiery furnace. It's so hot, the, the guards that throw them in burn alive. And when they look into this fiery furnace, they see all three men alive and a fourth presence, which is the presence of God. Impossible situation. No man can walk out of a furnace that hot, but that's what happens is they walk out, and they don't even smell like smoke. That's how impossible it was. And what we hear is that, that God meets his people when they pray. When there are these impossible situations, they cry out to God, and God hears his servants and delivers them. Over and over again, God delivers his people. And thirdly, God's grace is unstoppable, no matter what the world throws at us. It's unstoppable. You cannot stop it. Through God's grace, he did not abandon his people. He sends prophet after prophet. He gives them kings. They wanted a king. He says, you don't need a king. You have a king in me. He sends kings. He sends prophets. All these things are happening. Yet, even in their rebellion, and their sin, God doesn't give up on them. We know as we look at the whole Old Testament, God brings them back. He draws them back to the land. And he ultimately gives them the Messiah. I love how one author puts it. God never abandoned his people to the full consequence of their sin. But in loving kindness, he subjected them to an ordeal that purged them of idolatry. Then hearing their cry of repentance, he allowed them to return to their homeland, thus setting the stage for the coming Messiah. So part of what was happening in the exile is they're living in sin. He draws them out through judgment. He makes them live in exile. He gives them back to the land. And it was setting up what was happening in the book of Matthew with the coming, the incarnation of the Christ child. Even in judgment, God's grace was abounding. Now, they didn't know it in the moment, right? And when you and I go through suffering, whether it be from our own sin or whether it be from the sin around us, we don't feel the goodness of God all the time. But God's goodness is always abounding. It's always drawing us back to him. God was bringing his people back to the land and would send them Jesus in the future. So these three themes give us a picture of God's work in the life of Daniel. And this morning, I want us to focus on one major idea in chapter 1. That here's the idea. That as exiles, you and I are called to be faithful in a land and culture that is not our own. Let me say that one more time. That as exiles, we're, we're people in a foreign land. You and I are called to be faithful in a land and culture that is not our own. This place is not our home. Now, for the last two weeks, actually just until yesterday, um, my family and I were on vacation in Montana. We got back last night. And for the first week, I was in a little church outside of Billings, preaching and teaching. And then we spent a week in Glacier National Park. We drove across Montana. And uh, I learned three things about Montana. Montana. Number one, it really is big sky country. You look up, and the sky seems bigger. I don't know how that's possible, but it's big. Um, the other thing is the landscape is breathtaking. Uh, when I took pictures, I was like, man, that looks just like a postcard. And it was. It was awe-inspiring about how big God is and how beautiful his creation is. And the third thing is, there's very few people in Montana. Um, Montana's about four times the size of Kentucky. I'm eyeballing that. I don't know if that's true or not. 
you look at a map, it looks about four times the size of Kentucky, but it actually has fewer people than the city of Louisville does. It's crazy to imagine. I would drive in one direction for like 30 minutes, not see a car, not see a house. Um, but as we were traveling through Montana, one of the places we went was a place called Beartooth Mountains. This beautiful place. As we were driving through these mountains, you could see snow on either side of us about 10 feet high. Even in the summer, 65 outside, and there's so much snow, it's just packed on the side of the road. But the thing that really stuck out to me is on the side of these mountains, there would be these trees growing. I think there's a picture of this behind me. You can see these trees, and this is all over the place. These trees seemingly growing out of rock. Now, I don't know a lot about trees. I'm not an arborist, but I'm pretty sure that trees are supposed to grow in dirt, not in rock. Is that right? Any arborists in the house? No? Okay. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure that's the case, but there they were as I looked at them. These are trees that were growing through rock, literally like piercing up through rock, or they were growing around rocks, or they were growing uh, mostly in rocky soil. They were not growing in habitats that were hospitable for trees, at least what I understood. And it got me thinking about the life of Daniel. That's a weird thing to think about, but I was thinking about this sermon. And I was like, you know, that reminds me of what was happening in the life of Daniel. Daniel was planted in a place that was not hospitable to his faith. He was planted in the rocky soil of Babylon that was opposed to God and the way that he was seeking to live. Where Daniel was planted, he did not belong. But somehow, somehow, Daniel flourished. He flourished in his life. How was that the case? How could Daniel and his friends th thrive in a place that was not for them? It was oppressive and even sought to destroy their faith. Daniel and this tree are both planted in a place that they should not have flourished, but they did. So this is what I did. I went back home and I, I used something called Google. I Googled trees and rocks, trees out of rocks. I was trying to get the right uh, verbiage. And I found this quote um, from a tree specialist. Here's what she says. She says, one might not expect trees on rocks to live long, but paradoxically, when trees do grow in these rough cliff environments, they can actually outlive their counterparts in rich forest environments by a factor of 20 or more. The oldest trees in the world are trees growing in rocky environments. Isn't that crazy? How is that possible? How could a tree that's, that's, that needs nutrition and water and sunlight, how can it grow in a place that it's not intended to be? And I was amazed by this because that's what's happening in the life of Daniel. For 70 years, he's planted in this place where he should not have thrived, where he should have wilted away, but he doesn't. He thrives and he's prosperous. And it should encourage us that we can live lives of faith in a faithless world. The first thing that our passage teaches us that, um, in this context of, of living life in a faithless world is that God is sovereign over life even when it falls apart. We see this in verses 1 through 7. And when you look back at verses 1 through 7, it seems like from the outside that the God of Israel has just been defeated. You've got the nation of Babylon, the, the Babylon, the capital, it's, it's in modern-day Iraq. It was the superpower of the day. So it rolls in, and th three different times it wins battles against Judah. It overtakes Jerusalem. It destroys Jerusalem on the third time. And it seems like that the gods of Babylon are stronger than the, the God of Yahweh. But that's not, the fact, that's not the case at all. In fact, it was God who was behind Judah's defeat and exile. It was part of God's plan all along. Look back at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jeroakim, the king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's, hand. 
So part of God's plan for his own people was for them to lose a battle multiple times and then to be brought into exile for a long period of time. But if we stop for a second and we look at all of the book of Daniel and really a lot of the minor prophets, the context we see the exile happening in is the people of God chose to rebel against God and because of their choices, they were put into exile. So which is true? Were they in exile because of their choices or were they in exile because it was a part of God's plan? Because God was sovereign over it. It's a trick question. Both are true. Both are true. And I would be amiss if I didn't stop here and say we have to wrestle with this truth. People make real decisions that have real effects. And if you're a parent, you know this. Um, I have a five-year-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old, and we're still in the phase of, like, your choices have consequences. We see this over and over again. We tell our son, don't do that. If you do this, this is going to happen. He does it anyway. We give him a punishment, and he's surprised by it. We shouldn't be surprised by that, right? When you and I make choices, there are good consequences. We make a good choice, good consequence. Bad choice, bad consequence. It's not always clear like that. Sometimes we make a good choice, but circumstances around us are bad. But when we make real choices, they have real effects. We're responsible for our choices, and ultimately, we will stand before God and be held accountable for those choices. And yet, God himself is at work in these same events. So it's not like these are our events and these are God's events. The same things, the the things that we have to make decisions about, that we have choices over, that have real effects, are the same events that God himself is in. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Not simply that he allows things to play out, but that he is active in all things. He is active in all things happening. God is sovereign over every single thing. Every single thing. And if you read chapter 1 carefully, you'll see it over and over again. The one who's behind the scenes making the story play out is God himself. He's working in the hearts of the Babylonians to show favor. He's bringing conviction to Daniel to make resolutions and choices. He's bringing uh, Nebuchadnezzar along. All of this is part of God's plan. Scripture is clear that both human responsibility and God's complete sovereignty are true at the same time. Both are true. The people of Judah make real decisions that lead them to exile, and God's plan for them was their exile. This is the hard reality to get our minds around, and honestly, uh, I don't have my mind around that, that I can reconcile these two. But I think where we come as the church is we open up the Word of God, and we ask the Scriptures, what does it say, and we believe what it says. Now, I'm not trying to be overly simplistic here. I'm just saying the Scriptures call us to be responsible for our choices, and it also shows us that God is completely sovereign. And as hard as this truth is to grasp, when we do embrace it, when we, we come to the point where God gives the ability to embrace it, it can bring comfort like nothing else can. The sovereignty of God, the fact that God's presence is in the midst of all things, will bring us great comfort. I think about my own story of suffering and loss. Knowing that God was in the midst of my pain brought me comfort like nothing else did or could have. You could have come and been kind to me or give me money or say the nicest things or send me a meal. All those things would have been awesome, but none of that would have brought comfort like knowing that God was in the midst of my pain and that he was sovereign over all things. Growing up without a dad, suffering as a child, going through cancer and as an adult, losing a child, all of that, all of that was overwhelming and still is, but God's grace 
through his sovereignty, brought comfort and still brings comfort like nothing else can. So I don't know where you are at today, whether you have just come out of suffering, you're in the midst of suffering, or you're about to go into suffering. It's one of those three, just a heads up. Wherever you are on the spectrum, you need to know that God is there with you and that he is sovereign over all things. Daniel and his friends were experiencing unspeakable pain like I did, I do, like you did, like you do. They were also experiencing pain because of the exile. Think about what was going on. They lost their home. They lost their culture, their language. They even lost their families. All of that was happening. They were forced to adopt a new language, a new culture. They were pushed to adopt a new religion, though they did not. But they knew that God was in control of all things, that he was present with them. He was in the middle of the exile. He had gone before them in the exile. And he would prove himself to be faithful, and he did. As you, as you look through the book of Daniel this summer, I want you to see over and over again, when they face an impossible circumstance, God shows up. God's there. God meets them in their brokenness. The book of Daniel, the whole book, shows us that God was with his people even in their darkest hour. Even in their darkest hour. And what that shows us is that knowing that God is sovereign, even when life is falling apart, can give us comfort. But it does more than just give us comfort. The fact that God is in control of all things gives us courage to be faithful in a faithless world. It does bring comfort, but that comfort moves us to courage to be faithful. Look back in verse 8, Daniel 8. Daniel 8 is the central point of the passage. It kind of holds all things together. It gives us an insight of what's happening. Let me read it again. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So it's important for us just to understand what's happening here. There's, there's a cultural phenomenon that is taking place that gives us in, insight into the courage and resolve of Daniel. So eating from King Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's table probably seems insignificant to us. In some ways, we're like, why wouldn't you eat from it? Like, you're in exile, you're a slave in a land, and the king is saying, eat my best food. But to be an Old Testament follower of God was to obey God's law. Part of God's law was there's food you can eat and you can't eat. For example, an Old Testament follower of God could not eat pork, which is really sad because bacon's amazing. But you couldn't eat it. So maybe there was lots of pork on the table. I don't know what was on the table. Um, so we don't know exactly what was taking place, but what we do know was that uh, the food could have been from an unclean animal like a pig or, or something else. Or maybe the food and the wine had been sacrificed to idols. Whatever was happening, what we do know is that Daniel and his friends knew that if they ate the food, they would be compromising their faith. So they come to this point in their, in their life where all this stuff is falling apart. They're losing their home. They're losing their identity. Their, their name has even changed. It's changed away from, from one that honors God to one that is more honoring to the idols. But there comes a point where they have to make a decision. And we see this in verse 3. Let me read verses 3, and, three through 5. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the no, nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, 
They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So what's happening is uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the most influential, the smartest people, and he seeks to train them. They're in this like internship to be a Babylonian. And what Nebuchadnezzar was doing is he was carrying out a much bigger plan than conquest. Nebuchadnezzar was just not about, I'm going to roll in, I'm going to defeat your armies because I'm the biggest power on earth. He was doing something bigger than that because he understood that to truly expand his empire, for his empire to be permanent, he needed to do more than just defeat armies. He had to change culture. He had to change culture. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. The king takes the smartest, the most handsome, the most influential of Jerusalem, and he invests three years in them, and he trains them to be Babylonian. So here's what was happening. They were God's people. They were from Judah. They were from the tribe of Judah. They were from Jerusalem. They were of nobility. Like They were somebody, something. And when Nebuchadnezzar takes over this area, he begins to change their identity. You're not, you're not God's people. You're a Babylonian. You're a Babylonian. So they go through this whole process. So this internship, part of that was eating of the best food. So when Daniel takes a stand and he refuses to eat the food of the king, he is doing more than avoiding unclean food. It's more than food. It's more than like, do you eat vegetables or meat? It's not about, are you a vegan or a vegetarian? That's not what's happening here. He is taking a stand against a faithless culture. Because this is what was happening. Daniel was committed to being a man of holiness and faith in a culture that called him to compromise in order to fit in. Daniel and his friends knew that if they ate of that food, that they would be compromising their faith. They would be compromising their faith. And when he stood up, when he refused to eat the food, when he asked to be tested, there was risk in that. And there is risk when we seek to stand for our faith. And I just want to stop for a moment and, and address maybe the elephant in the room. This is where we are as a church, right? We live in a culture that is oppressive to us. Now, I don't want to blow that out of proportion as if the culture has always been friendly to the church. But this is what I want to say. We are not the majority. We're not the majority. And we never have been. Daniel's courage in this moment should be a rallying call for us as the church. What does it mean for you and I to stand for our faith, to be witnesses for Jesus in a faithless world? For far too long in our culture, we have been under the assumption that our values and our faith were the majority of you. We've been led to believe that morality was somehow equated to true and genuine faith. We got comfortable and began to expect the culture at large to share our values and faith. And that's foolishness. It's foolishness. However, the cultural shifts of the last five years, ten years, fifty years, whatever, however you view the cultural shifts of our time, have woken us to the reality that we live in a faithless world. And it's becoming clear that our values and our faith are not the majority, but the minority. Here's the reality. We are a minority people. The church is a minority people. And that's the way it has been for 2,000 years. And if you read the New Testament, you can see this idea of God's remnant. The early church, they suffered deeply. You see the church during the Middle Ages. You see... Churches all around the world today who are the minority. We as the church are a minority people. And we're called to live lives that are radically different than the world around us. We are not called to live in isolation. This is not, I'm not saying because we're minority people and because we 
are experiencing these things and because we're radically different, we should pull away and move to Montana and create some kind of cult. It's not what I'm saying, okay? Although if you want to do that, there's plenty of space in Montana to do that. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't do that. Um, because when you look at the life of Daniel, that's not what he did. Actually, Daniel did the opposite. He was led into an exile. He lost everything. He was called to be a Babylonian. He took stands for his faith over and over again to worship and honor God. Yet he thrived in the culture. He made a significant difference in the culture. So we should be doing that. So I'm not saying that. What I am saying is we are called to live countercultural lives that clearly reflect the radical nature of Jesus and his kingdom. Let me say that again. We are called to live countercultural lives that reflect the radical nature of Jesus and his kingdom. As we do this, as we live countercultural lives, as we shine the light of Jesus through salt and light, as we make a difference in our family, in our neighborhoods, in our coworkers, we should not be surprised when the world around us is opposed to us. When its values, its politics, and its cultures don't fit who we are as a people. When we come to this reality, we're not losing anything. We're not losing anything, church. Instead, we're, become, we're becoming aware of what has always been true, is that God's people have always been the minority. Always been the minority. Let's be reminded of Jesus' words in John 15. Start in verse 18. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world, the world would love you as it's one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would have listened to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Here's what Jesus says. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised when the world is against you. One of my favorite passages related to this idea is Philippians 1.29. Paul tells us in Philippians 1 that we as the church are promised two things. Our salvation, the gift we are promised, we are given the gift of salvation and suffering, persecution the opposition of the world against us. Over and over again we see this. And you know why this is the case? Because we have an enemy that seeks to destroy us. From Genesis chapter 2 all the way through Revelation, we have an enemy who is seeking to destroy us as the people of God. We must not be surprised by that. The story of Daniel and the words of Jesus in John 50 remind us that we don't belong. We don't belong. You and I, like Daniel, are exiles in a foreign land. This world may feel like home. We may get comfortable. We may settle in. But it's important for us to know this world is not our home. And I don't know if you feel that way. Um, I often feel this way in times of suffering or discontent or sin in my own life. But there's this low-lying idea, this like heart posture of like, I, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. Like, this is not my home. I love Louisville. I love this being my home, or I'm originally from Tennessee, like I love calling that my home state, like all those things are part of who I am, but ultimately at the end of the day, this is not my home. I don't fit here. God made me to be something different, to be in a different place. Our true home, my true home, is only found in the kingdom of God. Think about the name of our church, Sojourn Church. So Sojourn Church started 19 years ago with a bunch of young people who love Jesus, and they named it Sojourn because they wanted that 
to signify how they lived life. But what, is so, what, is, what does it mean to be a sojourner? What's the definition? A sojourner is someone who stays in a place temporarily. Someone who is passing through. Isn't that beautiful? To be a sojourner is to, someone who is passing through. That We're just here for a time period. The name of our church has such significance to us as a people of God. And Daniel understood this concept as well. He knew that Babylon was not his home, even though he spent the vast, vast majority of his life there. Over 70 years, he invested in a place that was not his. He sought to, to create a life and to plant roots and to do his work in a way that honored God, but it was never his home. He knew that he was in exile. Daniel lived like a sojourner because he lived life, a life of faith and holiness in a faithless generation. His life was distinct from the lives of those around him. So let me ask you a question, church. Does your life reflect the life of a sojourner? Does your life reflect the fact that you have been changed by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? Are you different? Are you distinct? Or does your life blend into the culture around you? Now, what I want to do in the sermon is to give you lots of questions, and I've been asking the Holy Spirit to bring conviction upon your heart because we're all coming from different places. And for some of you, you may have wrestled this for a long time, and you may, are, are making choices as a sojourner. I'm just passing through. This world is not my home. My home is in heaven. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. And others of you, like myself, we want to cling to this world, to stuff, to people. We create idols in this world, right? And your idol might be a flashy new car or the latest shoes or a shopping spree, or it might be your kids stepping on toes here. Or it could be something that is like that we deem okay, but we lift it up and we idolize it over God himself. So whatever that is, are you living a life of a sojourner? Does your life reflect the fact that you've been changed from the inside out and you are distinct in this world? This can be a painful question to ask. But I think too often we get comfortable here on earth and we forget that we're exiles, that we don't belong. Now this doesn't mean that we're not rooted and faithful because you should be rooted in place, faithful to those around you, faithful to live out the scriptures just as Daniel was. But what it does mean is that this is not our home. And maybe you are experiencing that now. Discontent with, from your sin or from the sin of others or maybe just longing to be with Jesus. And that is good. That's a discontent that we should have as Christians. This world is not our home. And as we look at the life of Daniel, we see a man who is committed to honoring God by being faithful in a faithless world. But it would be very easy to lift up Daniel and say, wow, Daniel's amazing. We should be like him. It would be very easy to like, make this a veggie tale scene. I'm sure they've made a veggie tale over the life of Daniel. Can you give me a head nod, parents? Yes, they have. Okay. It's going to be a very easy to elevate a biblical character and say like, wow, we should be like that guy. Now, in some ways, we should honor Daniel and we should look to him as a role model. But this story is not about Daniel. It's not about Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. That's not what the story's about. Daniel was able to live a life of courage, not through his own power, but because he had a life rooted in God himself. His power to live a resolute life, a life of courage, came from life with God. And this is what I noticed as I studied verses 7 through 21. As Daniel sought to honor God, to be resolute in his life, God showed up. And God shows up when we seek to be faithful. So that's what I noticed is that the main character of the story is not Daniel. It's not the chief of the eunuchs. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. The, the main character is God himself. 
And if you'll read the passage again, you'll see God present everywhere. Verses 3 through 6. Who is behind these four men getting into this elite training and having influence in Babylon? It was God. God was the one who did that. Verse 9 literally says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. God gave him favor. Verses 12 through 15. God was the one who allowed them to pass the food test. Because this is what we know. If you just eat vegetables for 10 days, you're not going to look good. You're going to want some meat, right? I'm joking, guys. Calm down. If you're a vegetarian or a vegan, calm down. Um, but what I'm saying is they passed that food test. They were able to live on vegetables and water, and God allowed them to be strong and to, and to stand before the king. Verses 17 through 20. We see that God was showing favor by giving them ten times more knowledge and understanding than even the wisest people in Babylon. Now, these were young men. There's no way that they had all that knowledge and understanding, but God was behind it. Even, even so, Daniel was given even more favor because he could understand dreams, which you know will play out later in the book of Daniel to their favor. And then lastly, verse 21, we see that Daniel stayed in the same place of service Serving Babylon for 70 years. Over and over and over again. The main character is God behind the scenes, working out his plan, showing favor to his faithful. What's my point? My point here is it's easy to look at the life of Daniel and to celebrate him. But the real hero of the story is God himself. God was the one that showed up over and over again in the life of Daniel. He was the one who gave Daniel courage to live a life of faith in a faithless generation. And church... If we are going to stand up and honor Jesus with our life, with our family, with the decisions that we make, it is not going to be through your power or my power. It's going to be through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Depending in, growing in, trusting in the Spirit to push us and drive us. And as we think about God's faithfulness to Daniel in a culture that sought to crush him, what would it look like for you and I to live lives of faithfulness in a faithless generation? So I want you to just take a minute and to think about your life at home, in the workplace, around your neighbors, maybe with your extended family, the pressures of culture that are pushing against you, what does it look like for you to have a Daniel moment and stand up and be a light for Jesus? Now, I'm not going to give you, here's 30 ways you can do that. This is what I'm going to say. The Holy Spirit is working in you. If he's bringing conviction in your heart, you need to obey. You need to stand up and to have courage. But I do not want this sermon to be a sermon about go and be a better person. Pull yourself out of your bootstraps. Go and be strong. That's not what God has called us to do. Here's my one application point. If you want to have faith in a faithless generation, the most important thing you can do is to be with Jesus. The distinct thing about Daniel and his friends is they lived an active life with God. And you'll see this through the book of Daniel. Daniel took time in his life to be with God to abide with him, to talk to him, to love him. And it was out of the overflow of that life with God that he could stand up in a faithless generation. So church, if we want to stand up, if we want to be distinct in this world, we need to be with God. Out of the overflow of that life, from that life that has been changed from the inside out, that's where we can stand. So let us remember that our faithfulness is not contingent on culture, but upon Christ. Christ is the one who changes us from the inside out. Inside out. He is the one who gives us the courage to live lives of faith no matter what our culture looks like or demands from us. Because you may say something like, wow, 
Culture has never been this wicked or this oppressive. Well, number one, that's not true. Study history, and you don't know what's coming next. But no matter what has been or what is or what will be, our faith in Jesus does not change. Our call to live lives of courage in a faithless generation does not change. Let us be men and women that root our lives in Christ and seek to live countercultural lives that reflect the radical nature of Jesus and his kingdom. And every, uh, every Sunday, we gather together. We get a chance to, with our hands and with our mouth, with our senses, to experience Jesus. We get to experience that in communion. God gave us this gift. He gave us baptism to experience what it's like to, to resur- be resurrected from the dead, and he gives us communion. We're going to break off in just a minute. We're going to break off a piece of the bread. And Jesus gave this to his disciples the night before he was crucified, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took a cup, a cup of wine. He said, this is my body. This is my blood shed for you. With the, with the body, with the bread, and the wine, when we come together, we can celebrate the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a death in our place, and then he rose from the dead, and he defeated death so that we could live lives of faith no matter what circumstance we live in. So if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to meditate on these truths, to come forward, take a piece of the bread, dip in the wine or juice, whatever your conscience permits, and remember that you have been changed from the inside out, that you can live a life of courage and faith in a faithless world. If you're not a Christian, this is a call to you to be changed. You can experience the life we're talking about. And if you don't know what that means, grab someone next to you who is a Christian and ask, how can I know Jesus? How can I come to faith? And they'll share that with you. So let's take just a moment, let's meditate on that, and let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to meet us as we take communion. Let's pray. Father, you are the creator and sustainer of all things. Lord, we have life and breath because of the goodness that you have given to us. Lord, you sovereignly hold all things together. You're behind the scenes working out your plans. Father, as we meditate on the life of Daniel and your goodness to him, or may we see the connecting points that you are in our life. You are bringing about change and transformation in our heart so that we can live by faith and courage in a faithless world. Father, as we take communion, may we be reminded that you are our Savior and we have been saved and sent. It's in your name I pray. Amen.